Hello and welcome to M&A on Trial, which is a podcast about those bits of M&A deals which, dare I say it, go wrong. Each week we'll be discussing what happens in real life when those words negotiated late into the night end up in dispute. We are your hosts, Harriet Martin, Senior Associate at Clifford Chance, specialising in M&A. And Sachin Tricker, I'm a partner at Clifford Chance, specialising in arbitration and post-M&A disputes. We're going to keep it simple, have some fun and hopefully give a fresh perspective for those of you, legal or business side, doing English law M&A deals across the globe. So, Sachin, our second podcast, and we've called it What's the Damage? So clearly, <laughs> this is going to be a podcast mostly about damages. So let's start with the fundamentals. How do we quantify damages for breach of contract generally under English law? Well, the, the basic measure under English law is um, what we call the expectation loss. Um, and that is putting the innocent party in the position as if the breach term had been performed. Um, so it's forward-looking in a way, it's putting you in the position as if that particular provision had been executed as the parties had bargained for. Uh, in English law, we believe in the compensatory principle of damages. And so what that means really is making sure that the innocent party recovers what they've lost. No more, no less. But what have you lost as a result of that breach of contract? English law will make you whole. And look, dare I say it, um, this is in a disputes context one of the most important issues and for obvious reasons right clients will come to us something's gone wrong but ultimately what we're really interested in is what can i get out of it and that's why damages are are, are very important and it'd be quite interesting just as a way of uh, contrast under us i think you've told under us law you've told me that they have a concept of punitive damages yeah exactly and and perhaps not just the us other jurisdictions as mm -hmm. well have this idea that um, when someone commits a, a wrong, you don't just compensate for a loss, but you punish for committing a, a wrongful act. And that's where the concept of of punitive damages comes in. Um, Not relevant for us here, though, in London. Know, us, us English lawyers, we, mm. we, we reject such things. Um, we, we don't recognise the concept of punitive damages in, in, in English law. And, and similarly, we don't um, allow penalty clauses. Uh, in, in English law and perhaps that's okay. something we'll discuss in, in, in due course but the compensatory principle of damages what have you lost you'll get it back got it so let's put this in the real life context for an M&A deal and we'll go back to breach of warranties so for example the target has uh, no litigation or I mean, no outstanding liabilities for example this is a statement about the quality of the business the quality of the asset that the buyer is buying if that is not true then what the measure of loss that you would get would be uh, the difference in value between uh, the shares as if the warranty had been true uh, and the value of the shares as they are now so that difference in value would be the measure of damages that you could get but i think one point to to, to emphasize is that proving that loss can actually be very tricky, um, and you know, in an arbitration or or, or in a contentious proceedings, you'd likely get experts in to to value the shares, and that can be contested. You know, you'll put your own valuation forward, your opponent will put an alternative valuation forward, it will be debated, and ultimately the tribunal or court will decide who they prefer. So, um, th th that evidential issue, proving the loss, uh, can actually be very difficult uh, and can be highly contested. Um, and so, you know, I can imagine that that might be something that's, that, that you look at in the course of contract. 
I don't know. Maybe that's something that 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 buyers will look at in the context of an of of the actual SPA itself, given the, yeah, the difficulty. No, in, absolutely, and and an argument that you know happens on a lot of M and A deals um, is whether the warranties can be given on an indemnity basis. So that basically means yeah that the warranties are treated as an indemnity, which broadly from a buyer's perspective is helpful from this kind of all these difficulties around proving loss that you get with the warranties just on a on a contractual basis and actually this is something we see when we compare the you know the london compared to the you know the the us market in the us market it is quite common for warranties to be given on an indemnities basis and that is one of the reasons that there's a sort of general perception that in the us if you're doing m&a in the us it's a slightly more buyer friendly market whereas if your contract is governed by english law uh, it's a slightly more seller friendly market i mean that's quite interesting because uh, you know perhaps to make an obvious point uh, an indemnity a contractual indemnity is a, a a far more powerful remedial tool than than your ordinary damages at law um, not least from a proof perspective right because proving your loss can be quite challenging every now and again but you also have rules of remoteness of loss under english law you have rules of mitigating your loss under english law and these can operate as an inhibitor to the final sum that you ultimately get can reduce the value. Whereas your indemnity, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, obviously depends on what the contract says, but it's a more powerful remedy. So I can understand <laughs> why buyers might see that as a, a preferable a preferable solution. In the other argument that we sometimes see, again, generally resisted quite strongly in a by a seller is warranties being given as representations mm. and we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast you know your risk and misrepresentation claims can we talk about what that means in the context of for a buyer so if yeah. you've managed to get into your contract that yeah. your warranties are representations what does that mean i mean it, it to, to the untrained eye that might not seem like a big deal um, you know, t- translating a warranty into representation, but actually from a, from a remedies perspective, um, that can have quite a significant impact actually, because uh, if if the particular statement is also a a representation, and it's false, right? So there's a false statement of fact, and you're opening the door to a misrepresentation claim, then you're also potentially opening the door to a rescission of the contract. And let's and just just. To remind everybody, rescission is what? I mean, rescission classically understood is putting the parties in the position as if the contract had not been performed. So unwinding. Unwinding the deal. So, you know, the expectation measure we discussed is is forward looking. Put me in the position as if that breach provision had been performed, right? Rescission is now going backwards. Put me in the position as if the contract hadn't even been executed. So you can imagine if it's a bad deal, Right. And someone's trying to get out of it. Rescission's a pretty powerful tool. So having that statement as a as a representation is valuable. So very nice for buyers. Right. Not nice generally for sellers who clearly don't want to be in a position where the buyer can walk away. Generally don't want to be in a position when the buyer can walk away from the contract um, other than in the areas which they've agreed, for example, if the conditions aren't fulfilled. That's right. As a rule of thumb, that's right. And I think that, you know, from a buyer's perspective, Sure, this might be something, again, in the UK market, it's hard to negotiate, but if you want it, if it's important, put it on the table and have the, you know, have the negotiation about it. 
And if, you know, it doesn't happen, then at least you you know that if there is a, a warranty claim, backing out of the contract won't be available to you. Makes sense. I mean, the other issue that we sometimes have is um, a situation where, you know, damages are not adequate. They're not an adequate remedy for the situation at hand. Um, and that can be you know, quite an interesting situation. And what it does under under English law is open up potentially another suite of remedies, right? And and those remedies are uh, typically the equitable remedies of specific performance and perhaps injunctive relief. So just um, to, by way of translation, again, m- maybe lots of people realise, but specific performance, making the other party do something that they said they would do. That's it. Or injuncting, stopping a party from, stopping the other party from doing, uh, Taking taking an action which is prohibited by the contract. Yeah, e- exactly. So specific performance is, as you said, right, force me to perform. Mm. Um, an injunction in its ordinary sense is uh, a, certainly a prohibitory injunction is stopping a wrongful act from taking place um, as distinct from getting a monetary sum. And um, therefore, you know, philosophically, these are quite different remedies. And if I'll just make one point around... Uh, the philosophy of English law here, which I, I find quite interesting. Um, and that is that the ordinary remedy for a breach of contract is damages, right? It's money. It's not forcing a party to perform. It's not stopping a party to perform, subject to one or two exceptions. And and what that really means philosophically is English law has quite a liberal approach to breaches of contract. It won't force you to perform. If you want to breach a contract... English law will say, okay, well, look, breach the contract. So long as you make them whole monetarily, that's all right. right? We won't force you to perform unless damages are an inadequate remedy. So this, I think, is really interesting because the way that this would play out, I think, in a deal context, so we'll often have, I think where it really comes comes about is on some confidentiality obligations and non-compete obligations. So you end up with some wording that says stuff like, uh, you know, the parties acknowledge that, damages may not be a sufficient remedy and that, you know, the other will be entitled to seek other remedies for breach of the contract, which I suppose is this idea of opening up the door to making it available to the parties to argue that, yeah, in these in these circumstances, damages are not enough. And so we should be able, we should be able to ask or ask a court to grant these other remedies. So in some instances, you see liquidated damages clauses. Um, and just to be clear as to what that is, a liquidated damages clause is where the parties have agreed up front the sum of money that will be payable in the event of a particular breach. So they liquidate the damages that you'd get uh, in the event of that breach and specify right up front. So there's absolute certainty as to what sum of money uh, the innocent party would get in the event of that um, uh, that breach of contract. Uh, do you see that in an M&A context? I think that the, the place that I've seen it come up most is break fees. So this mm-hmm. is where you know one party has to pay a sum of money to another party normally for example if the conditions aren't fulfilled so maybe if they fail to get shareholder approval for a deal or fail to get antitrust approval then you know on the buy side for example they might pay a a sum of money to the seller to effectively I suppose compensate for the loss to the seller of doing the deal is there anything that we should have be thinking about in that kind of context? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the law has moved on a bit in this area because it, it's quite a controversial area of law. Because what 
the main issue you're looking at really in liquidated damages is whether it amounts to a penalty clause, right? So it's penal in nature. It is... Which is what uh, we were talking about earlier. Not, right. Not, not something the English, English law likes. Don't, don't like that. Don't, don't like the idea of um, penalising uh, someone for committing a wrong. You get compensated for your loss, but no punishment. Um, and it's, it also lines up with that philosophy we're talking about around um, you know, not forcing someone to perform their contract if they don't want to. If something is penal and it has such a drastic impact on a party, it's effectively forcing them to perform something they don't want to perform. English doesn't really like that too much. So it might regard that particular clause as unenforceable. Um, so, I mean, the law has moved on in that. And there were some cases recently, I think McDeshi is the one uh, which is uh, most commonly cited, where the test was really specified as, um, you know, what you're looking for for a penalty clause is essentially a secondary obligation, which is out of all proportion to the legitimate interest of the innocent party. So there's quite a lot to unpack there, but, you know, what it's quite a high bar, you know, out of all proportion to the legitimate interest. Um, and by secondary, you mean it, it, it's activated on a breach? Yes. And that's crucial, right? So... This whole regime around penalty clauses only applies in the context of damages for breach, right? pre-agreed measure on a breach of contract. So should we wrap it up there and think of some key takeaways? I think for me, the first really important one to think about is from a buyer's perspective, breach of warranty, your damages is generally a loss in the value of the shares. It is not loss on an indemnity basis right and when damages are an inadequate remedy it's in that situation and generally speaking only in that situation where you can open up the secondary remedies that we have in english law such as specific performance and injunctive relief and then if you've got any sort of liquidated damages break fees something similar just be careful that, that you're properly dealing with that in the contract and that it's payable not upon breach but just in a certain event 100 percent Thanks very much, Sachin, again. Thank very interesting you. conversation. Our next episode is called Push to the Limit. How do sellers limit their liability in M&A deals? And where does that leave the buyer if their losses exceed those limits? Look forward to seeing you there. Mm-hmm.